0: From Public Radio International, this is Living on Earth. I'm Steve Kerwood. A new front in the fight against global warming, green groups, Native Americans, and labor joined together to demand the U.S. president stop granting leases to extract coal or oil from federal lands.
1: This is just the beginning. We have to address the climate crisis. And for President Obama to stop fossil fuel leasing on public lands, would be the way to establish his climate legacy.
0: Also the enticing ad that found the tiny cavers who unearthed the latest branch on our family tree.
2: I just basically said that you needed to be skinny, not claustrophobic, and you had to be able to drop everything within three weeks and come for an undetermined amount of time to South Africa, unpaid. Oh, and you had to have a PhD or master's in paleoanthropology, archeology, span or related field. We'll have those
3: stories and more this week on Living on Earth. Stick around. Support for Living on Earth comes from United Technologies, innovating to make the world a better, more sustainable place to live.
0: From the Jennifer and Ted Stanley Studios at the University of Massachusetts, Boston, and PRI, this is Living on Earth. I'm Steve Kerwood. Science now tells us that if all the known fossil fuel left on Earth were burned, it would raise sea levels as much as 160 feet as ice melted. So activists are now demanding that it stay in the ground. And on September 15th, a coalition of some 400 groups converged on the White House to call on the president to stop leasing federal lands and the coastal seabed for the extraction of coal and petroleum. They are taking on a big business. For example, in recent times, some 400 million tons of coal a year have been mined from federal lands, much of that for export. We called up Ruth Breach, a senior campaigner with Rainforest Action Network, as she came back from the demonstration at the White House. Welcome to Living on Earth
1: great thanks for having me
0: so what's your basic message here
1: we're telling president obama we're asking him that if he really wants to leave a climate legacy and address the crisis that is in front of us right now then he needs to stop leasing federal fossil fuels this is coal oil and gas and keep our carbon reserves in the ground
0: how much global warming is related to the extraction of fossil fuels from public lands in the u.s including offshore federal territory
1: Right. When Obama and the Obama administration decides to stop federal fossil fuel leasing, we can keep up to 450 billion tons of greenhouse gas emissions in the ground. Compare this to Obama's recent announcement with the Clean Power Plan initiative. So this is emissions reductions coming out of power plants. And that's only 6 billion tons of emissions. And this would be 450 billion So on orders of magnitude, this is much larger. So this is a big, bold ask, and it's critical.
0: Now, of course, there's federal land in in every state, but what parts of America most contribute to fossil fuel production from public lands?
1: Most of the contributions to fossil fuel production is coming from the West. So this would be Montana and Wyoming. There's a region there called the Powder River Basin. Northern New Mexico and Arizona and the Navajo Nation A lot of public lands are adjacent to, if not um, within the boundaries of Native American reservations. We're also looking at offshore areas. So this would be the Gulf Coast, the Arctic, the Atlantic. These are hot spots that industry wants to mine, drill, or frack.
0: How much power does President Obama have to halt the leasing of uh, fossil fuel extraction on federal lands if he decides he wants to?
1: He has all the power. The Center for Biological Diversity just issued a report last week and outlined his legal authority to issue an executive order to stop the program today. He could also, too, if he didn't want to be that active, he could just decide to not approve things. He could have not approved. It could have just sat on his desk for the next 18 months Arctic drilling. He could have not approved you know, the Atlantic leases that will be coming up in the next few months. He could just leave them alone and leave them on his desk.
0: Sally Jewell is the Secretary of the Interior, and that's the organization that actually conducts leasing for energy extraction from public lands for the very most part. And uh, she's been quoted saying the president certainly is mindful of global warming, but that we need these fossil fuels to run our economy right now. Your reaction?
1: I think it's short-sighted. What you hear from Sally Jewell and other administrative officials in that capacity is that they somehow think that their mission is to balance industry's interest with that of the planet. And if you really think about this as like short-term profit versus like long-term sustainability. Um, so I really would like to see her looking longer term. What does this look like in 10 years, 20 years? Because fossil fuels are eventually gonna go away. Coal's already dying. The gas boom is not as big as we originally thought. This is their opportunity to really get ahead of this. What is their plan? How are we going to use our lands appropriately? How are we going to use our resources? And then how are we going to address this climate change crisis that we have on our hands right now?
0: Ruth, how much presidential politics is in this? Uh, The Democratic candidates are out in front of President Obama on this subject already. Uh, Hillary Clinton has already called for a halt in offshore drilling in the Arctic. And I can only guess that Bernie Sanders would be even more sympathetic to your call.
1: Right. We'd love to see that. I mean, Ideally, this would happen within this presidency. I think Obama has the power. I think the timing is ripe right now. You know, folks are already reaching out to candidates to get their views on it. I love that Hillary came out against Arctic drilling. I think that was bold. So I think if if the candidates are smart, then they're going to address this in their debates. They're going to address this in their platforms. And they're going to make a decision about it. And they're going to have a plan coming into office if this issue has not already been addressed.
0: Ruth, what happens next?
1: This is the next bold ask coming from the climate movement. We're seeing unprecedented unity in the coalition. We've got big greens, frontline organizations, climate justice groups working alongside labor unions, faith groups, all coming together and showing how much power there is in the grassroots. This is just the beginning. We have to address the climate crisis and for President Obama to stop fossil fuel leasing on public lands would be the way to establish his climate legacy and would move us at a whole nother level of magnitude in addressing these issues.
0: Ruth Breach is a senior campaigner with the Rainforest Action Network. Thanks so much for taking the time with us today, Ruth. Thank you. Federal courts hardly ever overturn agency rules, but the Ninth Circuit Court of Appeals has found that the EPA illegally approved an insecticide linked to declining numbers of honeybees. The court found the EPA had failed to get enough evidence from the maker Dow AgroSciences to approve the safety of sulfoxaflor. Sulfoxaflor is a neonicotinoid, a systemic insecticide that becomes part of all of a plant's tissues and is poisonous for insects. Commercial beekeepers and the environmental group Earth Justice sued the EPA about the approval of sulfoxaflor. Greg Laurie is the staff attorney with Earth Justice who argued the case.
4: In the case of sulfoxiflor, what the court found is that EPA approved sulfoxiflora without any reliable information about the risk that it would present to honeybee colonies. And that, of course, is a huge shortcoming when we're in the midst of this crisis where we're losing over one-third of our honeybee colonies every year, and science is pointing to these sorts of insecticides as a primary cause. Now,
0: it's practically unheard of for a court to overturn an Environmental Protection Agency chemical registration. What happened in this case?
4: Well, the case began shortly after EPA approved sulfoxiflor in the summer of 2013. Earth justice was approached by America's commercial beekeeping industry. The biggest trade groups in America, including the American Honey Producers Association, American Beekeepers Federation, and others, And, you know, these folks are really at their wit's end. They are at the point where beekeepers are going out of business. So they approached Earth Justice and said, is there anything we can do about this latest neonicotinoid coming onto the market? And we took a look at the registration and found that, indeed, EPA had not met its own guidelines, didn't have the information that it was supposed to have in hand. And so we filed suit. Under the law, the case bypasses the lower court's goes straight to the Court of Appeals, and the case was heard last April. And then finally we get the decision concluding that indeed EPA had broken federal law when it approved sulfoxiflor. And it is quite unusual for courts to uh, overturn pesticide registrations, and partly that's because the law gives EPA a great deal of authority and courts give EPA a great deal of deference because it's a matter that doesn't follow a fair amount of scientific expertise. It's very technical and the courts don't feel like they're in a position to second guess that sort of science. But in the case of sulfoxiflor, the science was so lacking and it was so clear that EPA just didn't have this fundamental information that the court found that the registration had to be overturned unless and until that information is brought to bear.
0: What conditions does a chemical, this insecticide, have to meet in order to be approved by the EPA and and how is that determined?
4: Under federal law, EPA's job is to ensure that use of a pesticide will not cause an unreasonable environmental or human risk. They take in a great deal of information from the company that is marketing the pesticide and they try to determine whether it's going to present a risk to the environment and if so, how do we mitigate that risk, for instance, by putting restrictions on the label time that you can spray it, amount that you can spray, that sort of thing. But at the end of the day, it's something of an imprecise process, and it also, of course, relies on the quality of the information that's coming in.
0: Describe for me what EPA did or didn't do in connection with approving this chemical sulfoxifluor.
4: Sure. To determine the impact that an insecticide will have on what they call non-target insects, like honeybees, Traditionally, EPA has studied what it calls the acute toxicity of a pesticide. And essentially what that means is they take a honeybee into the laboratory, they expose that individual adult honeybee to the pesticide, and they figure out how much of the pesticide does it take to kill that adult honeybee. And they figure that, well, if bees will be exposed to less than that lethal dose, then the pesticide won't cause any problems. Now, This whole process really falls to pieces when you have the systemic insecticide overlay. They may not kill on contact. The adult bee might go out into the field, collect pollen that has the sulfoxiflora in it or the systemic insecticide in it. And so the adult bee brings the pollen back into the hive, feeds it to the developing brood. And over time, that buildup within the hive causes the whole colony to sicken, weaken, and ultimately collapse. So what the law says is EPA needs to consider this possibility. EPA needs to do not only those laboratory studies, but also EPA has to consider what happens when we put a hive out in the real world and put it in a situation where it is feeding on crops that have been sprayed with the systemic insecticide. And that's the information that EPA so desperately needs and the information that it certainly lacked in the case of sulfoxiflor.
0: Now, typically, when it comes to registering a chemical with the EPA, the manufacturer of the chemical does all that research. In this case, why do you think Dow didn't conduct this research before they submitted their paperwork to the EPA?
4: You're absolutely right. The way the law is set up, the studies are all conducted by the corporation that is seeking registration. And then EPA's role is simply to review that information. Dow did submit six studies what EPA found, however, is that all six of the studies had numerous scientific flaws and were inherently unreliable. So, for instance, most of them studied a exposure to sulfoxaflor that was well below what would actually be happening in the field. Several of them lacked control groups of any kind. And yet, at the end of the day, EPA decision makers decided to register sulfoxaflor notwithstanding the flaws inherent in the studies.
0: So what happens next for sulfoxaflor?
4: Well, the court set aside EPA's decision to register sulfoxaflor. So the effect of the court's ruling is that sulfoxaflor goes off the market unless and until Dow submits to EPA this information. And EPA goes through this process again and, and follow the law this time around. So our hope is that this decision catalyzes EPA to really move much more quickly to protect what ultimately are not just honeybees and not just commercial beekeepers, but all of us and the nutritional diet that we require.
0: Greg Laurie is a staff attorney with Earth Justice. Thank you so much for taking the time today, Greg.
4: Thank you. We ask both Dow
0: AgroSciences and the EPA for comment. The EPA said in part, we are reviewing the opinion in consultation with the Department of Justice to determine our next steps. Dow AgroSciences respectfully disagrees with the Ninth Circuit's conclusion. Their responses are posted in full at our website, LOE.org. The end of summer in the U.S. has seen unprecedented and catastrophic wildfires in the Pacific Northwest, with whole neighborhoods burned to the ground in California. But the fire season up in Alaska and elsewhere in the far north was also devastating, and the 8 million or more acres burned there raises some ominous questions about the future of permafrost and boreal forests. To find out why we are seeing so many fires, especially in the cold north, we turn to Scott Getz, a senior scientist with the Woods Hole Research Center.
5: A lot of it is related to climate change, warmer, drier air masses that set the conditions for very intense fires. And some of the unique aspects, especially of fire in Alaska this year, was just how intense they were for a period of time right at the peak of summer in July. And that's a very important factor in determining how the forests change in the future, the severity of the fires that take place.
0: Now, President Obama was recently in Alaska talking about the importance of climate change. How are the forests in the Arctic changing with climate change?
5: They're changing in a number of ways. And by Arctic here, we would include boreal forests, which is the belt of northern forests that cross Alaska, Canada, and Russia. And those are changing largely as a result of fire, again, linked with changes in climate and these hot air masses. And that also influences the productivity of the forests. In other words, they don't grow as well during these very hot summers. And we call that browning. What we observe from satellite imagery, for instance, we call that browning. In other words, declining productivity trends. And we've mapped that over these northern forests.
0: I'm looking at an article uh, recently ran in Science Magazine that is quoting you, among others, and you have this map, this image of the browning of the boreal belt. What are the areas that are most at risk that you've seen with these observations? Looks like there's a lot in North America.
5: There's a lot in North America, that's right. There's a belt across interior Alaska, the central part of Alaska, and across especially the southern range of boreal forest in Canada. So that's quite a large area. It's not everywhere that's browning. In the higher Arctic, we actually see a lot of greening taking place, increases in, say, shrub growth and tundra vegetation growth.
0: So if there's new patches of green and new patches of brown, it sounds like trees might be moving. How correct is that?
5: There's pretty good evidence for movement of trees in these northern forests. There's a lot of interest in keeping track of that because it has large implications for climate in terms of feedbacks to climate from changes in the surface energy balance related to the density of trees or shrubs. In other words, as trees migrate north, they're much darker than the other vegetation there and they absorb a lot more solar energy, and they retain that energy so it warms the surface. And there are also pretty good estimates of what it's likely to look like in 30, 40, 50 years from now from fairly conservative models of just the habitat suitability for trees.
0: And what do those models show you? They show
5: quite a lot of change in terms of trees migrating northward from their current range into tundra vegetation, what is currently
0: tundra vegetation. So how much of this is good news? How much is bad news? Trees, of course, take up carbon dioxide from the atmosphere. So more trees might be a good thing or not in this case? It depends where. In the tropics,
5: it's almost certainly true that more trees are a good thing because they take a tremendous amount of carbon out of the atmosphere and regulate the climate system. In northern regions, the presence of trees, they remove some carbon from the atmosphere, but they're not highly productive systems. So what really matters there is how they change the energy balance and they absorb a lot of sunlight, retain that heat, and that can change climate. In fact, Some of our work shows that that factor of changing the energy balance far outweighs increases in plant biomass as a result of warming climate.
0: Now, how are the fires transforming the soil as well as the forest ecosystem in the north? Fire in these
5: northern systems actually burns off soil, especially in years like we saw this year with very intense fires. The soil actually burns. And that has a lot of implications because it changes what comes back after fire. In North America, we often see that producing a shift from what is currently an evergreen conifer forest to a deciduous forest that persists for decades. And that, again, changes the energy balance. It changes the amount of water that they transpire to the atmosphere. And it changes nitrogen nutrient cycling. And changes the whole productivity of the system and that again persists for decades. So those are big changes. Uh, It sets the system on an entirely new course.
0: Scott, talk to me about the permafrost in the northern forests and, and what's happening with that in the face of these fires.
5: Permafrost contains a tremendous amount of carbon, almost twice the carbon or more than twice the carbon that's currently in the atmosphere. So there's a lot of concern about permafrost degradation and release of carbon to the atmosphere as a result of warming. And and fire has great potential to degrade permafrost much more rapidly because it's burning off the insulating layer of soil and peat that insulates the permafrost, these frozen ground areas, from the atmosphere.
0: Scott, how can this process in the high Arctic, uh, record number of fires, uh, the degradation to the permafrost, how can this be halted or reversed?
5: I think it's largely a matter of bringing awareness to the issue to help policymakers understand the tremendous potential for carbon emissions from permafrost especially permafrost, combined with severe fires to produce enough emissions to the atmosphere that it's equivalent to another United States in terms of total emissions from fossil fuels. So I think that needs to get on the radar screen of the policymakers and enter the discussions of how to mitigate additional climate change and to cut fossil fuel emissions.
0: Scott Goetz is a senior scientist and deputy director at the Woods Hole Research Center in Massachusetts. Thanks so much for taking the time with us today. Thank you for having me. Now, there are many different species of nearly every type of animal living on Earth today. Dozens of whale species, thousands of butterflies and frogs, yet there is only one type of living human. Of course, that wasn't always the case. Once, there were several other members of the genus Homo, Homo erectus, Homo habilis and Homo neanderthalensis, for example. And now, paleoanthropologists think they have discovered a new member of our genus deep in a cave in a part of South Africa aptly named the Cradle of Humankind. Living on Earth's Bobby Bascom went to check out the site.
6: It's a cool, overcast morning, about an hour northwest of Johannesburg, South Africa. Postdoc researcher Marina Elliott leads the way past horses in a farmer's field towards a small stand of trees.
3: So just watch your head here, that's quite low. Okay.
6: She scrambles down a rocky path and emerges into a large cave. It doesn't look like anything special. Hundreds of caves just like this dot the landscape here. You would really never know that this was something earth shattering,
3: but no. yeah, definitely is.
6: The cave system is called rising star, and deep inside, researchers have discovered thousands of bones belonging to what appears to be a new species in our genus, Homo. They've named it Homo naledi. Naledi means a star in the local Sotho language.
0: If you're an anthropologist, this is as good as it gets.
6: John Hawks is an anthropology professor at the University of Wisconsin and one of the lead researchers for the excavation. He says the sheer number of fossils found here is unprecedented. Over the course of 21 days, the team unearthed more than 1,500 individual bone fragments, more than had been found in the previous 90 years of exploration in southern Africa. Hawks says they'll be able to learn a lot about human evolution from the Homo naledi fossils.
0: We don't really know how our ancestors developed, right, before they were human. The reason is that we just haven't had fossils that that represent the whole lifespan.
6: But the Homo naledi find will change that. Scientists unearthed bones to represent nearly every part of the skeleton for every age group, infants to elders. What they found is a creature that's strikingly similar to modern humans in some ways, but extremely primitive in others. The brain was roughly a third the size of modern humans. The shoulders, chest, and pelvis were also very primitive. The hand was similar to ours, but curved, an adaptation for climbing trees. But Lee Berger, the lead author of the study, says the feet of Homo Naledi are extremely modern.
2: And the feet are practically indistinguishable from humans. This is a walker.
6: Berger is a research professor at the University of Witzwaterstrand and a National Geographic explorer in residence. While he was working on a hominin species called Australopithecus sediba that he discovered just a few miles from the Naledi bones, Berger commissioned local spelunkers to go out looking for more hominin fossils. On October 1st, at 9 o'clock at night, they came knocking on his door and showed him photographs of a mandible and a skull resting in loose soil, an unheard of find.
2: To see these things lying on the surface and have an early hominin morphology is just staggering.
6: Berger was so excited about the find and worried about its security that he couldn't sleep that night. So at 2 o'clock in the morning, he called Terry Garcia, then the head of exploration at National Geographic.
2: I said, Terry, if you're ever going to believe in me, believe in me now. He waited for a moment and then he said, you know, do what you need to do, which, by the way, is explorers speak for you can have money.
6: Berger's next challenge was to find qualified scientists who could retrieve the fossils. The tall, skinny cavers that initially found the bones described a tight squeeze through a gap just seven and a half inches wide and later a narrow chute where they had to lie on their stomachs and push themselves forward with their toes.
2: I didn't know how I was going to reach out to find very tiny people with these extraordinary skills to work in a cave. Um, And so I did, I guess, what my generation does. I turned to social media. I wrote an ad. Didn't tell them what they were doing. I just basically said that you needed to be skinny, you need it, be not claustrophobic. And you had to be able to drop everything within three weeks and come for an undetermined amount of time to South Africa, unpaid. Oh, and you had to have a Ph.D. or master's in paleoanthropology, archaeology, or related field. So there were probably like three people in the world.
6: In just over a week, Berger had 57 applicants, 80% of whom were young women. The six scientists he ultimately chose to wiggle through the tiny space were all petite women. And it's partly because the cavern is so inaccessible that Berger's confident in advancing his most bold and potentially controversial hypothesis about Homo naledi.
2: We think that this species of non-human animal deliberately disposed of its dead in that chamber. It implies a lot of things. It implies that they probably recognized their own mortality. They recognized other self. They took some level of risk to move into the deep, dark zone of a chamber to make sure that their dead were not touched by the external environment in perpetuity.
6: Modern humans are the only creatures known to purposefully bury their dead, a custom that scientists believe arose between 60 and 80,000 years ago. Not all of Berger's peers are ready to accept his theory of purposeful burial. William Jungers is chair of anatomical sciences at Stony Brook University. He says it's possible there was once another easier-to-access entrance to the cavern and cautions against arguing for more meaning behind the final resting place of these hominins.
5: If you were frequenting this cave uh, or you were living
7: nearby and you had a deceased relative uh, starting to decompose, you might want to dispose of it uh, in some dark deep hole yourself to get away from
6: it. Researchers say they have literally just scratched the surface of the rising star cave system. In three weeks, they excavated an area roughly a foot deep, three feet square, and they estimate there are thousands of bones yet to be removed. So whatever the age and importance of Homo naledi turns out to be, paleoanthropologists will have plenty of work for years to come. For Living on Earth, I'm Bobby Bascom in Johannesburg, South Africa.
0: Well, not lurking in a cave is our guide to the world beyond the headlines. He's Peter Dykstra of the dailyclimate.org and environmental health news. That's EHN.org.
8: And he's on the line from Conyers, Georgia. Hi, Peter. Hi, Steve. You know, there was some big news in global climate politics this week as Tony Abbott, the pugnacious prime minister of Australia, was ousted by his party. Under his leadership the past two years, Australia went from a fairly active nation on climate policy to a heavily criticized one. Over the years, Mr. Abbott has delved pretty heavily into climate denial, calling the previous government's climate policy crap. And while in office, slashing government involvement in carbon trading schemes and clean energy support.
0: And the timing of this move is significant as well, right? Uh, There's a major UN climate summit in Paris a little over three months away now.
8: Correct. And those who want to see the world get moving on climate change would welcome an Australian delegation that views the Paris summit as an opportunity rather than a menace. Abbott stood out as one of two heads of state most often blamed for hostility toward a climate agreement, and the other one is looking over his shoulder. Canadian Prime Minister Stephen Harper and his party are on thin ice, no pun intended with federal elections coming up on October 19th. The Conservatives, they're sort of Canada's Republicans, the Liberal Party, sort of the Canadian Democrats, and the New Democratic Party, they're sort of Canada's Bernie Sanders, are in a virtual tie in the polls, and a coalition government between the Liberals and the NDP would mean a huge turnaround in Canadian climate policy. In the same way that Tony Abbott hitched his wagon to Australia's huge coal industry, Stephen Harper pushed Canadian tar sands, and both prime ministers may be toppled within a month of each other. But let's move on to another institution in turmoil.
0: Okay, which one?
8: The U.S. media, specifically a new owner at National Geographic, a change in direction at the Weather Channel, and a minor insurrection at CNN. Let's start with that one first. An industry news site, Mediaite, reported that CNN producers fired some angry questions at their boss, CNN chief Jeff Zucker, over his decision to preempt a network special on the 10th anniversary of Katrina in favor of, uh, you guessed it, more coverage of Donald Trump. In Zucker's defense, I'd say that Katrina was only a Category 3 hurricane, and Trump, of course, is a Category 5 windbag and capable of doing a lot more damage to America. I'm, I'm just saying.
0: Yes, so you are. On to the Weather Channel, please.
8: The Weather Channel's owners at NBC laid off some staff last week, and that's never good news, and it's all too common in our industry. But along with that came some good news. The Weather Channel's going back to focusing on the weather. They're moving away from the trend toward reality TV shows and back to what they're good at.
0: Whoa, the next thing you'll know, MTV
8: will be going back to music or the Learning Channel's going to have some stuff worth learning instead of Honey Boo Boo and preschool beauty pageants. But on to National Geographic. The venerable magazine has turned controlling interest over to 21st Century Fox, one of the corporations run by Sir Rupert Murdoch and his son James. Nat Geo Media will turn from non to for-profit, and a lot of people are deeply concerned that the anti-science, anti-environment stance of some Murdoch properties, like Fox News, will show its head at National Geographic. I'm worried, too, but I'm far from convinced There are a lot of good, strong people at National Geographic magazine and the website. If they go, I fear for the place. If not, the Murdochs are smart enough business people to not mess with a respected, successful brand.
0: Well, let's hope. What have you brought to us from the History Vault this week?
8: Guess who turned 25 this week? Captain Planet, the green-haired, blue-faced eco-superhero created by my old boss, Ted Turner.
0: Well, a happy birthday to the Captain. That makes him seven months older than living on Earth.
8: And neither LOE nor the captain are showing signs of a midlife crisis. Well,
0: the mid-twenties are still a bit early for that, don't you think?
8: Yes, and as for the captain, no male superhero pattern baldness either. He still has a stunning crop of hair, so lush and so green it could be the tall grass along the 15th fairway at the Augusta National Golf Club. And that adorable blue face. And the bravery in defense of the earth. Yes, and in the six years the series ran, Captain Planet and his planeteers, kids from around the world, battled environmental villains with over-the-top names like Hoggish Greedly and Duke Nukem. And unlike what happens in real life, the environment won in the end every time. I've met a lot of people who grew up in the 90s who say that old Blueface touched their lives. Like everything, the series is still easy to find on the web, and the Captain Planet Foundation still does charitable good eco-deeds.
0: Peter is with Environmental Health News at ehn.org and the dailyclimate.org. Thanks Peter and talk to you next time.
8: All right Steve, thanks a lot. Talk to you soon.
0: And there's more on these stories at our website loe.org. I am Captain Planet. Coming up on the eve of the Pope's visit to the U.S., a conservative Protestant evangelical leader reflects on the pontiff's climate change encyclical. That's just ahead on Living on Earth. Stay tuned.
3: Funding for Living on Earth comes from United Technologies, a provider to the aerospace and building systems industries worldwide. UTC Building and Industrial Systems provides building technologies and supplies container refrigeration systems that transport and preserve food and medicine with brands such as Otis, Carrier, Chubb, Edwards, and Kidda. This is PRI, Public Radio International.
0: It's Living on Earth. I'm Steve Kerwood. Now, the shrinking of forests in the U.S. is having noticeable effects on wildlife— and particularly birds that rely on tree cover to nest, one of them is the star of today's Bird Note. Here's Michael Stein.
7: In September of 1851, Henry David Thoreau wrote, The whippoorwills now begin to sing in earnest about half an hour before sunrise, as if making haste to improve the short time that has left them. They sing for several hours in the early part of the night, then sing again just before sunrise. Clearly and continuously, the bird announces its name. In summer to early fall, eastern whippoorwills breed in woodlands of eastern North America. Their camouflaged plumage blends seamlessly with dead leaves on the forest floor. At dawn and dusk and all through moonlit nights... Whippoorwills sally out from tree branches to hawk-flying insects. Woodland habitat has greatly diminished for eastern whippoorwills as forests become more fragmented. The National Audubon Society lists them among the top 20 common birds in decline. Protecting and restoring large expanses of forest are crucial for many forest species, including the whippoorwill. It remains, as Thoreau described, a bird of the night side of the woods, where you may hear the whippoorwill in your dreams. I'm Michael Stein.
0: And there are photos at our website, LOE.org. Soon, Pope Francis will begin his first trip to the United States, where he will address a joint session of Congress and get an enthusiastic welcome from people of all faiths and walks of life. His defense of the poor and his demand for action on climate change in his encyclical Laudato Si have made him a rock star in the millions. Well, we thought we'd try and get an evangelical Christian perspective, so we called up the Reverend Richard Sizek. For more than a decade, Richard Sizek has been an outspoken advocate of creation care, the belief that stewardship of the earth is a God-given responsibility. He is the former vice president of government affairs for the National Association of Evangelicals, which represents more than 45,000 churches. He's now president of the new Evangelical Partnership for the Common Good, which seeks to end partisan and sectarian divisions. Reverend Seizit, welcome back to Living on Earth.
9: Thank you, Steve. It's my pleasure.
0: First, what's your reaction to Pope Francis's environmental encyclical, Laudato Si?
9: Oh, extraordinarily excited. I think he's hit upon not only the most compelling issue of the 21st century, climate change and the impact of that upon our Earth, but in a secondary way, The whole impact of faith itself upon politics, upon society, waning in the minds of some, certainly not to him. He is popular. He's influential. He's coming to America. Laudato Si literally translates, uh, praise be to you, my Lord. And in the words of this beautiful canticle by St. Francis of Assisi, he writes in the encyclical, St. Francis reminds us that our common home is like a sister with whom we share a life and a beautiful mother who opens her arms to embrace us. So praise be to you, my Lord, through our sister Mother Earth, who sustains and governs us and who produces various fruit with colored flowers and herbs. This is poetic language. It's beautiful. It comes from Romans and elsewhere. And frankly, uh, it's good to point that out, Steve, because the earth does groan in travail, as the Apostle Paul wrote in Romans 8.22.
0: What do people both within your faith and outside of it need to do about the climate in your view?
9: They need to begin to think differently. And that's what uh, the Pope says too. Most of all, he's called for an ecological conversion for the faithful. That's what evangelicals need to do It's to begin to see what's happening to the earth. It's described in this uh, encyclical. It's persuasive. Man is doing this to its environment, to our environment, our common home as the Pope calls it.
0: Now, You've had significant experience representing evangelicals in front of political figures. How do you see this environmental encyclical from the Pope as affecting the conversation on the Hill in Washington about climate change?
9: It's going to be, first of all, political theater of the highest sort. A Pope addressing a joint session of Congress, the question is uh, probably not whether his voice will have political impact. It most certainly will, because... He is the Pope, the Holy Father. He carries weight, not just with Catholics, but even with a lot of other mainstream Americans and evangelicals, the polls show that. And so he's going most assuredly to touch upon issues like capitalism itself, immigration, climate change, and what he very much cares about, namely help for the poor, its interrelationship to environmental protection and economic inequality. And these are all issues in our election year, believe it or not, And a lot of Republicans, well, they're the ones who've been poo-pooing these. I would hope and pray, frankly, that he makes the most of the moment and challenges politicians who are essentially bought. Steve, this is really true. It's just legalized bribery by the oil and gas and other industries that profit. We have politicians who will be sitting in front of this moral leader who are bought and paid for by the oil and gas industries. And they should be ashamed of themselves, but they probably won't be.
0: The field of presidential candidates is filled with folks who are members of the Christian faith. Some are evangelicals, some are Catholic. How do you think climate change might come into play as an issue as this race picks up, and how might their faith influence this conversation?
9: Well, you do have Catholics, as you said, such as Jeb Bush, Marco Rubio, Martin O'Malley, and Chris Christie. They're all Catholics, and well, there could be a domino effect if the Pope uh, speaks out on climate change and how they respond to it. So it's going to be hard to avoid it, the politics of all of this. You uh, you have evangelicals in this too. And so you'll have actually sitting in the uh, chamber there for the big speech, Marco Rubio, Lindsey Graham, Rand, Paul, Ted Cruz, these are senators. And so the question is, you know, will they sit on their hands? Will they applaud? And of course- the resonance of what he says will have a huge, huge impact upon the public, and most importantly, I hope, upon the public's view of this issue, because only about 16 percent, Steve, think that climate change will impact them personally. It's that's happening somewhere else, not here. And, of course, we know just the opposite is true. This pope is not going to tell people exactly what to think. He, he will tell them, I think, what to think about, and that's just as important.
0: How do you respond to Jeb Bush's less-than-enthusiastic reaction to the Pope's encyclical?
9: Yeah, yeah. Jeb Bush's response was both derision and dismissal. He, as you know, is a Catholic convert. And so for him to say that, well, I don't get economic policy from my bishops or my cardinal or my pope, well, that is to minimize and to play into just the opposite of what Republicans have always said should be true, which is that faith and religion should have a voice in the public squares. And frankly, faith voices have always been the ones, most importantly, challenging the public to take up an issue that's not previously perceived is moral to be just that. Look at race relations, women's suffrage, and most particularly nowadays, the environment is what faith is saying is important and is a moral agenda.
0: How ironic is it that Rick Santorum said that the church should, quote, leave science to the scientists? The pope himself was trained as a chemist.
9: Absolutely. Even post-secondary education as a chemist taught it. And so he he brings uh, a scientific expertise to this. And you just can't say as the Republicans have been saying, well, leave it to the scientists. I'm not a scientist. Well, that doesn't work. That's just a red herring, as they call it. The Republicans are going to be put in an unusual position by a moral leader. Of magnitude none other on this planet, who's calling them, as he's calling all of us, to rethink how we live in this place called our common home, Earth. And who else could do this any better? So, for those of us who have been praying about this, working on this, this is an inflection moment.
0: Now, you're firmly within the pro life camp, uh, Reverend Sizek. How do you see the climate issue as pro life?
9: Oh, it certainly is. Um, you know, God's love in creation is so evident, and that's part of the encyclical. It's one of the chapters. And, and so the Holy Father, Pope Francis, after his namesake, Francis, uh, insists that every human being is an, is an image of God, and nothing or no one is superfluous. And he writes in the document that the entire material universe speaks of God's love, his boundless affection for us. Soil, water, mountains, everything, as it were, a caress of God. He goes on to say that uh, the history of our friendship with God is always linked to particular places which take on an intensely personal meaning. It is just wonderful language which communicates not only God's love for us as humans, but God's love for creation. All of life is sacred, and that is so uplifting. Some people think it's a gloomy document. I don't think so. I think it's beautiful, and it's poetic. It's even scientific. I remember one person who put it this way. He said, this, this document is a combination of St. Augustine and the National Academy of Sciences, and it's sort of a representation of the Pope himself, wouldn't you say?
0: Indeed. Let's talk about the evangelicals' possible response here. Uh, you're among only a very few public evangelicals who've spoken out on climate change. To what extent do you feel that you were pressured to rein in your statements on global warming back at the time that you were at the national organization, the National Association of Evangelicals?
9: Well, you may recall, I think we talked at the time, Steve, that we had put together what was called the the ECI, the Evangelical Climate Initiative, and I couldn't sign it, even though I had organized with my friend, the Reverend Jim Ball, the Evangelical Environmental Network at the time, to put it together. I couldn't put my own name on it. And then for the next five or six years, I took a lot of flack, as it were, for speaking out as I did. Ultimately, uh, it forced me to leave the association where I had worked for 28 years. So there have been huge impacts for me personally. But I think for the evangelical movement as a whole, it has been a black mark on the movement that its leaders, most of its leaders, some of whom originally signed the Evangelical Climate Initiative, were forced to take their names off, too. So the evangelical leaders haven't taken this leadership as they should have. And I think their children, grandchildren, and others will look back and ask, uh, what did you do, dad or granddad? What did you do about this issue? And some will have to, with embarrassment, admit absolutely nothing. In fact, they denied the science.
0: The last time we spoke, Reverend Sizek, two years ago, you estimated that three-quarters of evangelicals would be in support of addressing climate change.
9: I think uh, it's only when you get into some of the specifics that, that you get some disagreement. So, yeah, it's it's a bit split. The numbers are increasing demographically slowly, but the evangelicals are coming on board. A lot of them are too afraid yet to speak out. We know that. they are pastors in churches where they're afraid someone might take exception if they come out and say... I support action on climate change. It's imperative, it's, it's a moral thing to do. You know, they're, they're still afraid. And yet, uh, let's be optimistic here. Younger evangelicals, I call them the new evangelicals, they get the science, they get the moral imperative. They are winning the day and they don't have a problem here, they get it.
0: Before you go, Reverend Seizig, evangelicals typically have a conversion experience. They decide at some point that they are really going to embrace their faith, and of course conversion means change, how likely is it that large numbers of evangelicals will change their position on the concern about climate?
9: That's a tough question, Steve. Frankly, I I think it will take a miracle of sorts in the sense that the, the divisions, the polarization is so deep you have, uh, even within the Catholic Church, you see uh, a Northeast white Catholicism that votes Republican. You have a Southwest Latin or Hispanic and young church that votes very Democratic. You have that divide within the Catholic Church, and you have that same kind of divide within evangelicalism. And so it's going to take a miracle of sorts for people's hearts to be changed, because climate change has joined the um, religious rights cause you know, for division over issues—same-sex marriage— abortion and the like, they put climate change into that equation. And that's so sad. That's why the Pope's visit is so very important, because he is so admired. He is pro-life. You see, he cares about the family and the gender issues that evangelicals care about. And so if they uh, love him for those things, they should love him for this thing, too. That is on climate change. And it's going to be interesting to see how much he moves the needle, so to speak. I think he can. I think we're at an inflection moment in time that is God-ordained, and I praise the Lord for it.
0: The Rev. Richard Sisek is president of the New Evangelical Partnership for the Common Good. Thanks so much for taking the time today. Thank you. Imagine yourself in Yellowstone National Park as we leave you this week. In front of you is the fountain paint pot. It gets its name from the bright yellows, reds and browns of the oxidized iron in the mud that bubbles up from the caldera. Walk a little further along the lower geyser basin boardwalk, you'll come across the spasm geyser. It's a small geyser, and how much water it shoots up depends on the time of year there's less in the late summer. John Benham recorded these sounds for his CD, Yellowstone National Park Audio Tour of Discovery. Living on Earth is produced by the World Media Foundation and brought to you from the campus of the University of Massachusetts, Boston, in association with its School for the Environment, developing the next generation of environmental leaders. Our crew includes Naomi Ehrenberg, Bobby Bascom, Emmett Fitzgerald, Lauren Hinkle, Helen Palmer, Adelaide Chen, Jenny Doring, John Duff, and Jennifer Marquis. Tom Tiger engineered our show with help from Jake Rigo, Noel Flatt, and Jeff Wade. Alison Lirish-Dean composed our themes. You can find us anytime at LOE.org and like us, please, on our Facebook page. It's PRI's Living on Earth. And we tweet from at Living on Earth. I'm Steve Kerwood, and thanks for listening.
3: Funding for Living on Earth comes from the Grantham Foundation for the Protection of the Environment, supporting strategic communication and collaboration in solving the world's most pressing environmental problems. Support also comes from the Candida Fund and Trinity University Press, publisher of Moral Ground, Ethical Action for a Planet in Peril. Eighty visionaries who agree with Pope Francis, climate change is a moral issue for each of us. TuPress.org And Gilman Ordway for coverage of conservation and environmental change.
4: PRI Public Radio International